Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We are coming at you from Rulo University Medical Center. I'm Roanoke. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And on today's episode, we continue on our cytopenia series, and this time talking about a very specific type of cytopenia, that is neutropenia. Again, as we've been highlighting in our series thus far, these are common consults that we're seeing in the hospital and in the clinic all the time. And so we figured, why not turn it into an episode? This one's a really good one. You know, I, I always thought when somebody was neutropenic, I, I just kind of assumed they had leukemia or something. Because I feel like when I was in uh, in residency, the only time that I really saw a lot of neutropenia was with patients with heme malignancies. So when I saw a regular general medicine patient with neutropenia, I would freak out and be like, they must have cancer. Yeah, I, for me, it was always like seeing that weird sign on the door, like, oh, this patient's under neutropenic precautions. Whatever, whatever that means. I still am not fully sure. Like no fresh flowers, I think, was a rule that we had for a while. That is, that's that's so depressing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that <laughs> really is so depressing. Be the case. And, and, and I'm yeah. like, what, what are what are dietary neutropenic precautions? You know, Does, is there data yeah. on this? I don't, I don't know. Can't, yeah. Is, are people really dying at yogurt? This is, this is horrifying. If, I, if anyone needs flowers also, it's, it's a neutropenic patient. And, and that is, that's very true, Dan. You're absolutely right. And also, these patients are stuck in the hospital for so long. Uh, you know, a daisy here and there can probably brighten their day, just like could from anybody. So, you know, listeners, if you do have any insight into, you know, neutropenic diets, neutropenic precautions, whether that be something you've learned on rounds, feel free to send it our way via our, our Twitter or our Instagram. I think, you know, uh, we're all just as curious to learn about what this is all about. And we'll, we'll be sure to share your responses with our listeners in a future podcast episode. And if any entrepreneurial listeners out there want to start a flower sterilization business, I think there's a market for it. It sounds like Dan may be your first investor. Well, listeners, I don't want to keep you waiting for this exciting episode of Neutropenia, so let's get rolling. Hey guys, how's everybody doing today? I'm doing amazing. I just I just had a huge burger, so I just couldn't be happier. It's a great place to be. That sounds like a great place to be indeed. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I hope that you're not going to go into a post-food coma, Vivek. But I've got an exciting case that might wake you up, though, just in case you are starting to doze off. You ready? Yeah, yeah, I'm ready. I think I need it because I also had a bunch of tots. So this is let's get started. That sounds like heaven, though, I must say. So I have a I have an interesting case. I actually saw this patient um, in the hospital not too long ago, once again, while on call because hashtag first year fellow life. And so uh, this is a patient who's 55-year-old. She's a 55-year-old female with a past medical history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and she had come to the emergency room with several days of fevers, chills, nausea and vomiting, lower abdominal pain. And so in the emergency room, she was noted to have a fever um, of 101.4 degrees Fahrenheit. She had a heart rate of 115. Her blood pressure was 90 over 65, and she was setting 98% on room air. She had some blood work done, and her white blood cell count was 12.5, hemoglobin was 13, and her platelets were 167. So a septic workup was ensued, and the patient was started empirically on cefepime and vancomycin. 
The patient was continuing to spike fevers over the next several days. And so, you know, the antibiotics were continued and because unfortunately, you know, the fevers persisted despite a broad spectrum of coverage until the source was finally identified. On day three, the patient's labs were actually notable for a white count of two and an associated ANC of 1,500. And so with this new white blood cell count of two and the ANC of 1,500, that's when the consult came to me while I was on my benign heme rotation. You know, I just kind of wanted to ask you guys, um, I thought that this would be a great opportunity to talk about leukopenia and specifically neutropenias. Yeah, and you know, it's a super common console question, probably like right after thrombocytopenia in terms of most common things that we get asked about. Again, because nobody respects anemia, which I'm trying to change. And like so Only many more Dan. people are anemic. I know. Only Dan. <laughs> My pet issue. But uh, yeah, you know, I think that what's so critical, the reason we focus so much on neutropenia is because neutrophils are are super important. I always describe them as the first responder cells in the in the white cell group. So the first ones on the scene and when they're low, when they're specifically low, that really sets people up for sort of very serious infections, even from their own gut, just translocation of bacteria across the, uh, the gut wall can be a, a life changing to life threatening event in the setting of severe neutropenia. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's really important that we do talk about this to find this because we, we do see it relatively frequently and it's not just cancer that causes low blood counts and neutropenia. I wanted to just briefly before, just to mention one brief plug on leukopenia in general, if you see something like a lymphopenia, many of the things we're going to talk about in this discussion do not necessarily completely apply to lymphopenia, but if you just remember that mantra, medications, infections, toxins, those are the most likely causes of lymphopenia, including something like HIV. You know, that's a poor man's test for seeing if somebody has HIV, they might have lymphopenia, but thinking about meds, infections, toxins, that gets you a pretty good differential for lymphopenia. But I think now let's focus more on neutropenia, right guys? I mean, Ronak, how would you define neutropenia? Yeah. So, you know, I think what I had learned actually when looking into this consult was I think first it's important to remember what is normal, right? So what is a normal white blood cell count? And this is typically, at least in our lab at Rouleau, it's 4,400 to 11,000 cells per microliter. And of that, neutrophils make up 40 to 70% of that total cell population. And so when we think about neutropenia, we actually have to think about that ANC. And, you know, our listeners you may, you may often hear, especially hematologists talking about the absolute neutrophil count, but what does that really mean? And it's essentially using this idea that neutrophils are a component of the overall white blood cell count to determine what the percentage of neutrophils actually is. And so you take your white blood cell count and you're multiplying it by the percentage of the PMNs, so the neutrophils, plus the bands, which are, you know, essentially your baby neutrophils. And you're dividing, you're dividing that by a hundred. Um, and that gives you your, your ANC. And so, you know, as Vivek mentioned, it's important for us to understand and kind of grade the degree of neutropenia in the same way that we also thought about this for our thrombocytopenia, right? We broke it down to different categories, and that should give us an indication of when we need to be worried versus extra worried versus, you know, really, we need to do something now. And so that breakdown is as follows. So I learned that neutropenia is defined as an ANC of less than 1500. And then, you know, kind of dividing it further, mild neutropenia would be an ANC between 1,000 and 1,500, moderate being 500 to 1,000, 
and severe is an ANC less than 500. And a specific further classification of uh, neutropenia would be agranulocytosis, an absence of granulocytes, and that's when the ANC is less than 200. And one of the other things just for you know, the anyone who's in medical school, or even if you're a resident, just wondering, how exactly do I know how many neutrophils there are? Oftentimes, it'll be reported as a decimal. So you might see that there are 1.2 neutrophils, and you essentially just move the decimal place over by two. So that would be like 1200 neutrophils. If there was 0.5 neutrophils, that would be 500 neutrophils. If it was 0.05 neutrophils, that would be 50 neutrophils, for example. So I know that that tripped me up at least, and maybe I'm, I'm showing how much I actually knew about this going into residency and you know being an intern, but that took me a while to understand. So I just wanted to let everybody know that as a, just an important definition to realize. Yeah, it's really important to make sure that you know when you're looking at any number in, in your labs what, what your units are. And just like, like Vivek mentioned there, it, white count is almost always in 1,000 cells per microliter. In contrast to red cells, which are so abundant, they're reported in million cells per microliter. That's why the white count is like 14 and the you know uh, red cell count is something like 4.2. Yeah, there's three orders of magnitude separating those numbers, even though it really doesn't look like that in the chart. So be, be mindful of your units. And, you know, guys, so now that we know what's normal and abnormal, I was curious to kind of hear what your general approach is when you're faced with a situation like this of a, of a consult for neutropenia. So I'm going to start off with the very simple stuff and let Dan actually talk about the more complicated benign heme topics. So for me, I just remember three things, as you guys know, and are probably sick of hearing medications, infections, toxins. So the, the same thing really does apply for neutropenia. There are medication-induced neutropenia, drug-induced neutropenia. The most notable culprit for drug-induced neutropenia is chemotherapy. When I was in residency and I saw patients on whether they, they had gotten chemo for a solid tumor or whether they had gotten chemo for a lymphoma or some other heme malignancy, I would always wonder, how long are they going to be neutropenic? When did they get neutropenic? Is this normal? And what's important to know is that each of our chemotherapy agents have a different nadir in the white blood cell count. And generally speaking, that's somewhere between 7 to 14 days. So if a patient got chemo 7 days ago or 10 days ago and they're coming in neutropenic, that's common and normal. We often give these patients growth factors after they get their chemo, but that growth factor takes time to kick in. So they may come in and they may be admitted for an infection and may have sepsis. But that's okay, and their neutropenia is caused by chemotherapy. So knowing that the cancer patient may have gotten chemo, find out when they got their last cycle of chemo. It's incredibly helpful for neutropenia. Other things are things that you remember from maybe step one, the, the thyroid medicines, the methimazole and propylthiouracil, those can cause a neutropenia, and uh, clozapine can cause a neutropenia, and, and those can also cause an agranulocytosis. Often when we see agranulocytosis, I think drug-induced, because that is a very common culprit of something like an agranulocytosis. Moving on to infections, literally any infection. So when we're thinking about cytopenias and bone marrow suppression, any infection. Think about your viral infections, think about your sepsis, any of those things. And, and oftentimes it's hard because a patient may come in with normal white counts, get septic, and then their bone marrow is suppressed, and then they drop and get neutropenia, or they may have come in neutropenic for another reason and then got sepsis. So it's important to still rule out these other causes that we're going to talk about. 
And then the toxins, like we talked about before, any drug use can really suppress the bone marrow. Oftentimes, you'll see multiple cell line abnormalities, not in isolated neutropenia, but just wanted to throw that out there as well. I'm going to throw it out to Dan, though, now, to so he can explain really the more complicated causes of neutropenia. Yeah, and, and fortunately, these are a lot more rare, and some of them are going to come to you just sort of already packaged as a diagnosis. And what I mean is, for the more severe congenital causes of neutropenia, these are things that are typically diagnosed in childhood. That's primarily severe congenital neutropenia. There are a couple of genes that we know of as being responsible for this. There's the Elaine gene, E-L-A-N-E, which is a neutrophil elastase gene and a mitochondrial gene called HAX1, H-A-X-1. These previously were fatal conditions. They caused such severe neutropenia that, that patients would die of infection early in childhood. With the advent of, of factor support like GCSF, we've actually been able to support these patients through. They do still have quite a high risk of AML uh, over the course of their life, something like 10 to 30% lifetime risk. But again, this is something that's going to be figured out by the pediatricians. And if you're managing one of these patients in your clinic, they'll, they'll come to you with that diagnosis. And cyclic neutropenia is another that is frequently diagnosed in childhood. It, it's basically... Like its name suggests, it's a neutropenia that happens every few weeks, uh, some on the order of two weeks to a little over a month. And some patients may be asymptomatic, and those are the ones that may come to you as an adult without a diagnosis. And you just see this pattern as you're following them of, of change in their neutrophil count. And others will have things like, you know, frequent mild infections like um, frequent strep throat or uh, even just oral ulcers forming from time to time. And much like neutropenia that we see caused by chemotherapy, those ulcers heal up when the neutrophil count and the white count recovers. Coming along to some of the ones that you will probably be responsible for diagnosing in adulthood, one I think is really important to mention is something called benign ethnic neutropenia or constitutional ethnic neutropenia, depending on how old of a, a textbook you're looking at. But uh, this is a an inherited condition. It's most common in sort of uh, African and Middle Eastern Mediterranean populations, sort of thinking same area where you might see uh, mutations related to malaria resistance. And it tends to be mutations in this Duffy antigen receptor complex gene and in sort of the promoter region of those of those genes. It causes a mild neutropenia. Typically, that ANC is going to be between that 1500 threshold for calling it technically neutropenia and 1000 cells per microliter. Usually, it doesn't affect immune function that significantly. These are folks where it's just a lifelong thing where their neutrophil count is going to be a little bit low. And uh, similarly, there's benign familial neutropenia as well. That is something where just everyone in the family has a history of it, but it's not necessarily associated with a particular ethnicity. And uh, we don't really know what genes cause that yet. Uh, I'm sure that 23andMe is working on it, but at the moment, it's just something where you're going to have to rely on your family history and make that determination. Oftentimes, after a bone marrow biopsy, if you really have to look through someone's history, and this is really one of those situations where you're going to have to rely on your family history. And oftentimes, if there isn't a well-established diagnosis of benign familial neutropenia, it may still warrant a bone marrow biopsy to make sure there isn't something more serious causing it before you just you know, hang your hat on this diagnosis that we don't have a good test for and we haven't identified a gene for. So those are the, those are the big congenital causes that I would think of. I don't know if you guys have any others. Those are the main ones that I had read about. And I, you know, what I think I want to highlight here is 
I think as Dan pointed out, the history is going to be so critical in a situation like this. You know, whether that is trying to understand the family history or their medication history, as Vivek was mentioning, especially with things like chemotherapy, you know, it's going to be very, very important to help us kind of triage the severity and the onset and also the management of of this finding. And one of the things that I think is we really need to emphasize is that this idea of familial neutropenia and this benign ethnic neutropenia idea is really important because it's very common. And, you know, one of the sad things that we see sometimes is we want to enroll a patient on a clinical trial for a new cancer drug, but they have this baseline neutropenia and sometimes they're, they're not eligible for the trial. And it's really an important thing that we need to recognize more as physicians as we you know, move forward and really understand that there are many people who are just born with neutropenia. And going through just other acquired causes, we can talk about autoimmune causes, just like your immune system can pick off platelets or red cells, you can develop a primary autoimmunity to neutropenia. It's it's super rare to see, but it can happen. If you are going to get an autoimmune neutropenia, it typically develops secondary to something else. Um, I've seen it secondary to rituximab therapy, for example, or it can be just another autoimmune disorder the patient has, something like lupus. Typically, that's where we see some bone marrow suppression in the setting of a lupus flare, or as Vivek was mentioning commonly with some lupus medications, you can see neutropenia or pancytopenia. And then uh, there's also a couple of entities sort of associated with rheumatoid arthritis that we should mention. One is the so-called Felty syndrome, uh, a triad of uh, rheumatoid arthritis, splenomegaly, and neutropenia. And this is, uh, these abnormalities, well, the neutropenia and the rheumatoid arthritis anyway, improve with DMARD or disease-modified anti-rheumatic therapy directed at the rheumatoid arthritis. And uh, there's this other entity called large granular lymphocytic leukemia or LGL leukemia, it's something that's often associated with RA and has some of these same features of Felty syndrome, but it, it really is more of just this clonal process, um, a monoclonal population of these abnormal, abnormally large and granular lymphocytes, as its name would suggest, circulating in the bloodstream. And typically, the, the T-cell variant of this is more commonly associated with neutropenia, uh, and this is something that we just address with, with cytotoxic chemotherapy, methotrexate, and cyclophosphamide. And when I've seen people with Felty syndrome or this LGL, it's not subtle at all. These patients have massive splenomegaly. Oftentimes they'll have early satiety because their spleen is so big, it's pushing on their stomach and, you know, they'll have a lot of abdominal pain and it's really not subtle. And oftentimes these patients present with agranulocytosis. So this is another one we talked about with agranulocytosis that medications, whenever I see a patient, the other thing I always think in the back of my head when a patient comes in with agranulocytosis, that ANC less than 200 is exactly what Dan described. Do they have Felty syndrome? Do they have history of rheumatoid arthritis, big spleen, neutropenia, or agranulocytosis? Or do they have LGL? And I don't know if there's a, a real association here, but I also, yeah, I agree that patients always seem that have this condition always seem to be just exceptionally frail, like this, you know, the poor little lady with the horrible joint deformities from RA and uh, losing weight. Yeah, and maybe it's a feature of the splenomegaly. I don't know, but uh, they do seem to be in in bad shape usually when you see them. 
Speaking of sadly, the the little old lady that can come in, you know, I I think it's also that reminded me one of the other things that we always kind of throw into the differential for a possibility are your dietary causes. These patients, you know, may not have good access to food, and and as I think we alluded to at the start of the episode, dietary causes are rarely going to be just an isolated, you know, one cell line that's going to be down. It's likely going to be a pancytopenia, but nonetheless, as part of our usual workup, uh, considering things like B12 and folate levels are important as a rare cause of neutropenia, and also checking copper levels because copper deficiency, especially in patients that have had gastric bypasses, because I've been burned on this once or twice, especially in patients that have gastric bypasses, copper deficiency is more common than we think. So it's really, again, important to take a good history, but also consider that as part of the workup. I completely agree. You know, it normally will be a pancytopenia, but you just, you have to rule out those nutritional causes. They're so easy to reverse. Yeah, you you can't miss them. And I remember Dan taught me when I was a resident and he was a fellow that people with dentures and use a ton of zinc cream and have zinc excess can actually end up with copper deficiency. So what I always wondered, why do we get a zinc level when we're evaluating some of these patients with pancytopenia or you know, neutropenia, like we're talking about here. But the reason is because zinc excess can actually lead to copper deficiency due to decreased absorption. Yeah, there's a competitive inhibition there. They, they compete for the same uptake receptor in the, in the small intestine. That's so bizarre. I can't believe the history has to also include whether or not they're using the right type of polydent, but here we are. So <laughs> that's what we do in benign heme. That's right. That's right. We're, we're excellent history takers. I just want to briefly recap exactly what we just talked about there for the differential diagnosis. Always remember infections, medications, toxins. And in the case of neutropenia or severe neutropenia like agranulocytosis, always think medications. There are congenital causes of neutropenia, and we'll talk a little bit about why the history is so important when we're thinking about congenital causes of neutropenia, asking the patient if they've had low blood counts before. There are autoimmune causes of neutropenia. Anybody with an autoimmune disorder may develop some element of neutropenia. That's why cytopenias are a criteria in lupus, for example. There's Felty's syndrome, which is rheumatoid arthritis, massive splenomegaly, agranulocytosis. There's a malignant cause called LGL, which we've talked about has an overlap with this Felty syndrome. Again, these patients have massive splenomegaly and agranulocytosis, severe neutropenia. And then lastly, we can't forget about the dietary causes that patients who may have had something like a gastric bypass may have difficulty with, with low copper, severe B12 or folate deficiency. These are, these dietary causes typically cause pancytopenia if they're contributing to the neutropenia, but always important to evaluate. Well, that is certainly quite the extensive differential that we have to keep in mind. But I do want to give a plug for a great How I Treat article. That's what I had used before rounds when I was preparing to try to seem like I knew what I was doing. I referenced this Ash article, uh, this How I Treat article, and we'll include that in the show notes for sure for all of our listeners to, to review. It was fantastic. And there's a great flow sheet in there as well that makes it easy to follow. So, you know, as talking a little bit about the workup, the history as we've been highlighting over and over and over again was so important in cases like this. So again, looking for prior CBCs in the same way that we've been endorsing that for all of our cytopenias, trying to understand what is the chronicity of this? How quickly did this happen? Because again, we can gain a lot of insight into that. Whether this patient has had recurrent infections. So 
as Dan pointed out, you know, someone with benign ethnic neutropenia may have a low ANC, but they're not the people that are getting recurrent infections their entire lives. And that gives you a little bit of assurance that, you know, this may be a longstanding issue. It's not something that's new, as opposed to someone that is getting recurrent infections. So that's like pneumonia, sinusitis, recurrent skin and soft tissue infections, dental caries. Maybe you're thinking more about you know, you're thinking more about a cyclic neutropenia, for instance, where their their levels are going to ebb and flow. Next, of course, you know, you want to try to understand their their background, so their ethnic background, their family history, understanding their social history, so that includes alcohol use, drug use, what their dietary habits are like when they're at home. And then, as I pointed out earlier with the copper deficiency thing, understanding their surgical history, understanding have they had a gastric bypass, because that's going to affect their ability to absorb certain nutrients for sure. So that was some of the things that, you know, we definitely wanted to parse out for this patient um, and something that I learned to, to keep in mind for future consults like this. And so, you know, moving on from there, uh, what about the exam? And to be quite honest, the exam is is helpful if there's stuff that's there, but you know, there isn't an extensive list of things on the exam that you're looking for to help you with this consult. Of course, adenopathy, so large lymph nodes may be an indication that there could be underlying inflammation and or indication that there's underlying malignancy. The splenomegaly, especially with this rheumatoid arthritis kind of picture, could they have a felty syndrome, could be important. Also, again, splenomegaly can be an indication of an underlying malignant process. Skin findings, if they're present, such as, you know, seeing ulcers on the sides of the mouth or, or, or just like overall skin lesions consistent with infection may be concerning, um, for more of an acute drop or one of these cyclic patterns. Um, and then aphthous ulcers are also a, I don't want to say pathognomonic, but a very frequent association whenever there are drops in patients, absolute neutrophil counts. And these are very, very painful. And we will also include a, a copy of an image of those in our show notes, just in case you haven't seen one before. Because once you've seen one, you'll know what you'll be looking for. And that way you can look for it on your exam. Yeah, it's a shame. There's no uh, escultatory exam in hematology, right? You can't hear the, the patient's stem cells squealing in distress from, from their bone marrow. Instead, we do rely heavily on, on lab examination. So, uh, you know, obviously you need a CBC with differential, and you need that especially if you're getting consulted just for pure leukopenia. You need to know exactly what that breakdown is. And if somebody is asymptomatic and you have the luxury of time to work this up, say you're seeing this patient in clinic, you know, you need that time. You need you need to establish a trend. And uh, so repeating either, depending on how severe it is, a close interval repeat or sort of several labs over the course of a, a few weeks just to determine what that pattern is can be important as well. You want to look for signs of other end organ dysfunction. So always get a complete metabolic panel. Look at that kidney and liver function. And uh, my favorite thing in the world, reviewing a peripheral smear, important as well. That way you can look for, you know, evidence of atypia or basically abnormal looking cells that might point you in the direction of a primary bone marrow process or something like that. If you are more worried about uh, somebody has a history suggestive of an infectious etiology or, or autoimmune etiology, you know, specific labs like viral serologies, um, HIV, like we mentioned before, and the hepatitis serologies, Epstein-Barr, that sort of thing. Or if you're, you're more worried about autoimmune disease, uh, you know, sometimes it, it's not the wrong answer to send off that rheumatology shotgun of labs, um, ANA, the rheumatoid factor, 
a CRP, the ESR, if you're feeling particularly cruel and want to make one of your lab techs sit there and watch red blood cells fall down a column. And finally, again, it's it's often not indicated with a single cell line down, but if you're really suspicious for LGL, say you see something sort of concerning on the patient's smear, you can send off low cytometry to, to kind of confirm that diagnosis. At the end of the day, if you're coming up empty-handed or you're really worried about a primary bone marrow process, you, there's no substitute for looking at the bone marrow itself. We tend to shy away from it sometimes because it is more invasive, but if you need it, you need it. And that bone marrow biopsy can be an important part of the workup as well. So essentially, Dan, what I'm taking away from all of this is that the what you do for this patient is going to be very much dictated by what the underlying cause is. You know, unlike unlike some of the conversations that we've had for some of our other cell lines where there's some more generic, if you will, approaches to how you can address the problem. With with neutropenia, it's very much going to be dictated by what your workup what your workup suggests is the etiology for the underlying issue. So, you know, if there is an underlying autoimmune uh, condition, treating them appropriately for that autoimmune condition, or you know, if it is a a situation where they got chemotherapy, you know providing them that supportive care to, until their nadir passes and they're they're back into a normal range. You know, the one thing I will say on that which which reminded me, the question that we often get is patient neutropenic, do they need GCSF? And it's, it is an incredibly common question. And, uh, I, and you know, uh, go ahead. I was going to say and I, I I think it's actually a very good question because quite frankly the first time someone asked me that as a, as a fellow, I was like, "Huh, that's a really good point. Why wouldn't we be doing this? And so, you know, what I had taken away again from my time on consults is it's typically indicated for patients with recurrent or severe infections or, you know, significant mucosal erosions. But what is important that is, is that we don't just give this medication to treat a number alone, right? So they can, they can be neutropenic, but not have any symptoms at all. And in which case it's not necessary to give them GCSF. And the other thing is that GCSF, as I've learned more and more in, in having to build chemotherapy plans for patients, it's often built in into the plan, right? We give it to them, you know, on day one, for instance, of their or day two or whatever early on in their cycle. And, you know, it begs the question of why we're doing that. And, and what's important to take away and what I've learned is that it doesn't actually prevent them from becoming neutropenic per se, but it may decrease the amount of time that they're in that neutropenic period and thereby decrease the likelihood of them getting an infection. So still super important, but it may not actually change the acute issue if you give it to them, you know, in the midst of a neutropenic process. And I think one of the most important things to highlight out of what you just said is that it takes time for the growth factors to work. So, you know, if you're going to treat them supportively through the infection, and whatever caused their neutropenia is transient, you don't need to just slam them with growth factor. And the other thing is these growth factors have side effects and risks to them. There's a risk of splenic rupture. And as we talked about in the important physical exam finding of palpating that spleen, if you had something like a Felty syndrome or an LGL with a huge spleen and you gave them a bunch of growth factor, you worry about splenic rupture so we could harm the patients. And that's why we really, like Ronick said, reserve this for patients who are who are very sick, who have sepsis, and we need to help support them through their acute illness. Don't forget the horrifying possibility of capillary leak syndrome. It's super rare, but it can happen with GCSF too. Imagine not being able to keep any of your fluid in your blood vessels. That would be a problem. 
and uh, and bone pain too. That's uh, people who get either big doses of GCSF uh, as the sort of new Lasta or long acting version of, of GCSF can tell you it can be really unpleasant and really painful. Um, so yeah, I agree. There's no unlike you know giving somebody iron because you think their iron's low and they're anemic, anemic or whatever it is. Um, there's no real empiric therapy for just generic neutropenia, with the possible exception of just giving them B12 and folate. Which is kind of crazy that, you know, you consult hematology and we just say, sit tight. Let's figure out what caused it and try to prevent it. But we don't really want to do anything about it, which is uncommon when you ask something like that to any consultant. But it's often the right answer. You know, I know that you guys are on your, on the edge of your seats to figure out what happened in this case, ultimately. So I'll just, I'll just spare you guys uh, and, and just tell you. As one would predict, our workup was largely negative, unfortunately. And given the acute onset by which this happened, right, because the, the white cell count fell so abruptly while the patient was in the hospital, we actually suspected that it was likely related to something that happened during the hospital course. And so as the antibiotics continued to be de-escalated, namely, you know, the cephalosporin that the patient was on, the vancomycin that they were on, which I learned along the way are also culprits when we think about drugs that can cause neutropenia. And the sepsis itself also improved. The patient started improving and naturally, slowly with time, that ANC improved, their white count improved, and ultimately she left the hospital and has been doing quite well. So all this to show, you know, the workup is super important. It's important to triage, you know, what could be causing the underlying etiology. But in many cases, it's just a tincture of time that these patients ultimately need. You know, it sounds like we're bad-mouthing antibiotics when we talk about all this stuff. But remember, the antibiotics are just chemotherapy that kills bacteria. Uh, you know, the mechanisms of action in a lot of these drugs is really similar to some of the chemo agents we use, like a Bactrim, an antifolate drug, like methotrexate, right? So, you know, it's, it, when you think about it that way, it's not really surprising that these drugs can suppress the bone marrow just like chemo. Dan, I never thought about it like that. You know, that, that makes so much sense. We're giving it's the chemotherapy to bacteria. I don't think I've ever heard anyone call that, uh, use that, use that analogy, but I love it. And the case is perfect because really what it showed us is that oftentimes when people are in the hospital with low blood counts and they came in normal, it's something we did to them or something that happened to them while they were in the hospital. And this is a perfect case. Well, guys, any final thoughts, any final questions, concerns that you all have for, for, uh, for any of us or, or our listeners? I'll start and I'll let Dan finish. I love tater tots. That's all I've got to say. Yeah. Uh, don't go around just jabbing people with GCSF for no reason. Make sure you understand what's going on. I get so many life skills from, from this group. It's fantastic. All right, guys. Well, that's all we have for this episode. Until next time, we'll see you later. See you later. Peace.